0: This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Thomas Binger, Kenosha County Assistant District Attorney and Lead Prosecutor in the case against Kyle Rittenhouse. Welcome, Thomas Binger. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's really great to have you on Miranda Warnings talking about uh, the Rittenhouse case that obviously had uh, national attention. Just a a brief background, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, was accused of shooting three people with an AR-15 during the Black Lives Matter protest that took place in August of 2020, uh, killing two, wounding one. uh, And this all occurred in in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, During the trial, he was acquitted uh, claiming uh, self-defense. Let me ask you, this is obviously a, a difficult prosecution from the start. What was your strategy going into this case? Well, we are... Kenosha is a community
1: that is a, is a small community, and we don't have these sorts of events uh, happen. Uh, most communities don't. Um, but it's one in which we had a lot of personal experience where people uh, felt the pain of what occurred in the evenings leading up to Rittenhouse shooting folks. Um, um, it started with the uh, shooting of a black man by a white police officer, which led to a lot of protests, which then turned into riots and arson and looting. And you had portions of our community that were deeply affected by that property owners that had their property damaged or destroyed um, people who had to stay in for curfew. And uh, it it disrupted uh, our community in, in many ways. And what the, the biggest concern I had about this trial was that there were a lot of people out there that felt that they would have done the same thing, um, that this is a, a hero, that this is someone who did what a lot of people didn't have the wherewithal to do on their own, which is to go out there and, and, and arm themselves and protect our community. So what I wanted to do as best I could during this trial was to try and differentiate this uh, defendant from what people viewed as a, you know, young kid, the kid next door, you know, my nephew, he looks like him. He's just doing what anybody would do. He's a hero. Um so if we view him that way, if we view him sympathetically, or if we think of him as my nephew or my kid next door, there's no way I'm going to get a conviction. Um, and I think that there were a lot of things about this defendant that set him apart from the pack. And I filed motions before trial to introduce some of that evidence, such as his association with the Proud Boys, such as his uh, statement 15 days before the shootings that he wished he had his rifle so he could uh, kill some shoplifters. And I wanted the jury to hear that information because I think if they had heard it, they might've seen him in a different light uh, because I don't think those are the types of things that you hear a 17-year-old do. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the pretrial rulings went against me. And so we weren't able to get that evidence in front of the jury. <clears throat> and I think ultimately that made this case very challenging because he does present as a young baby faced kid um, who looks no different than your nephew or your next door neighbor. You know, the kid that rakes your yard, the kid that uh, mows your lawn or delivers your newspaper. And so um, it became hard at that point. Uh, we had some uh less than sympathetic victims uh, in this case, who also had their own baggage. Um, so when you look at one side and you see the baby face kid, and on the other side, you see some folks that have some baggage, uh, that makes it even harder. Um, in my mind, this really came down to a, a bright line distinction of you know, using deadly force in self-defense. And I continue to believe that you know when you're armed and you're dealing with an unarmed person, you don't just get to kill them. Um, and I argued strenuously for that uh, with the jury. Uh, I think we had some good video that showed that this uh, was instigated by the defendant pointing his gun in the first place, bringing it uh, to a situation and confronting unarmed people. Um, but the jury saw it differently. And, and that's the way well, things work
0: out. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. And uh, since this is uh, uh, the Bar Association and uh, lawyers show that, let's talk about some of the pretrial Rulings that really went against uh, your uh, position, uh, Judge Schroeder uh, precluded the prosecution from calling those that were shot victims, but he permitted the def- the defense to call those who were shot to be looters and and arsonists, and and as you just mentioned, precluded uh, you from introducing or even uh, referring to video of the defendants where he indicated that he uh in a prior uh few days before that he wished he had his uh automatic uh weapon so that he could fire a few rounds at at looters and also precluded you from uh referring to a potential association with an organization called the Proud Boys uh white supremacists yet permitted the defense to talk about uh to identify one of one of the persons who who was shot um as an arsonist um so that really set the tone for where you could go how did how do you think that affected the jury especially the language you could use and your inability to go into uh, the state of mind of of rittenhouse yeah
1: it it put the victims on trial and you know when you've got the ability to introduce evidence that portrays the victims as criminals as arsonists as um, you know, mentally ill, uh, you know, wanting to go back to jail, uh, you know, setting fires and doing other things that contribute to the chaos. Um, it puts the, those individuals in a, in a situation where they're viewed as uh, as uh, less than worthy, you know, their, their life is devalued. And, um, you know, we're limited in homicide trials. And I understand the general principle that, you know, you don't we don't punish someone more severely if they kill a priest, uh, as opposed to killing a drug dealer. All life is is sacred. Um, so we're limited in terms of how much the state can put in good about the victim, uh, and theoretically that should, should apply in reverse, that the defense should be limited in how much they can put in that's bad. Um, what what was problematic here was that the evidence that came in about one of these victims, Joseph Rosenbaum, pertained largely to the events of that night and, and why he was out there and what he was doing. So it was very close in time. Um, it was in the moments leading up to all of this. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, I think that there are people in our community that felt like it was appropriate to go out there and shoot arsonists and looters and people who are starting fires and and tearing down our community Um, and that's I can can see that reaction it's it's not unreasonable I think um, if this is your community your business your neighborhood and somebody's doing that there are people out there that that may reasonably feel that uh, we need to take a stand against it Um, in my opinion though that way lays chaos that way lays uh, the breakdown of our society um, we have law and order. We have the rule of law. We have law enforcement to govern these sorts of things. Uh, you want to go back to Dodge City in the Old West, you know, uh, that's, that's one path, I guess. But um, at the end of the day in this trial, you know, I said it when the jury came back, you know, the, the judge entered the judgment of conviction. And I said, the, the jury represents our community and they've spoken. And in a sense, I think they've said that uh, at least under these circumstances, they're okay with this behavior. Um, I stood against it. I I don't believe in it. I draw that line, and I think that we can't tolerate it. Um, But for whatever reason, the jury and and certainly a large portion of our community feels differently. Uh, It's my sincere hope that this doesn't lead to copycats. It doesn't lead to others taking these matters into their own hands and trying to justify this type of behavior. Because, like I said, that that way lays chaos, and we can't have that.
0: Yeah, the, you know, the interesting uh, and difficult part of this self-defense is this wasn't an individual that was at his home, that was defending his home from an intruder or even rioters. Uh, this is someone that drove across state lines with an automatic weapon. Um, uh, I'm not sure of the exact purpose. Maybe you can talk about that. But it, when all this occurred, he was just walking through the streets. He wasn't necessarily defending anything. Um and so it, it doesn't doesn't isn't that different than than you you trying to defend your home or your property than just walking through the streets with an automatic weapon um can't you expect that there's going to be trouble
1: Well, that's the argument I made. I do want to clear up one little um, misconception out there, Dave, that you just mentioned. And I I hear this from a lot of people there. There's a belief out there that he crossed state lines with the gun. And that that actually is not true. Um, This is a weapon that never left the state of Wisconsin. It was bought in a small town in Wisconsin. It was kept at his friend's residence in Kenosha. And when he came up that day, uh, he did get it from his friend's residence. Um, But more to your point, You're right, this is an individual who doesn't have any ties to the community who takes it upon himself to arm himself and come down to a business he's never heard of before, whose owners don't even care enough to be there. Um, they've emptied out the place. There's nothing left to protect except for four walls. Um, and you know, one of the things I, I try to argue to the jury is this is an area of town where we've got a daycare, we've got multiple churches, we've got small businesses, we've got a school, and he's going to protect a used car lot. Uh, no offense to used car lots, they serve a valuable purpose. But really, if you If you're really concerned about the community, that might have been like the sixth or seventh uh, highest priority uh, location in that area. Um, But it's not his home. It's not a place he worked. There was no one inside. No one's living there. Um, There's no property left really to be damaged. Um, And I, I think we're dancing around the real point here, which is that this is a kid who... Had his own agenda, and, and this is the point of the trial that we couldn't get to because the judge wouldn't allow us to, but this is a kid who had his own beliefs, who had his own agenda, who wanted to make a point, and he was clearly on, uh, to, to simplify things, on one side of the public debate here, um, and I'm not trying to criticize or defend or whatever, either side, everybody's entitled to their opinions, but, but let's not hide the fact that he was there because of of those beliefs, and he was there to to strike a blow for those beliefs, and it became this veiled, you know, subtone in in the trial of, you know, these looters, these arsonists, these Black Lives Matters need to be stopped, you know, they deserve to be killed because of what they're doing to our community, and it goes back to the point we talked about earlier, which is we should be allowed then to give the other side of the story, which is this is someone who's associating with proud boys. This is someone who uses that gun uh, in unreasonable circumstances, and and there's a you know there's an agenda here. Um, so we hear one side, but we weren't allowed to hear the other side, and that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah. So I, let me dig a little deeper there because I know you tried very hard to uh, paint that picture, uh, and quite honestly, just from from an observer's point of view, watching it on TV, it seemed as though. The judge was uh, very critical of some of your approaches. And I'm, uh, as far as I can tell, most of that criticism came outside the presence of the jury, but nevertheless seemed very critical. Um, there were a couple of issues that I, I just want to talk about. There was one, you know, we talked about this video of of Rittenhouse uh, saying he wanted to, to shoot looters on a previous day. Um, and apparently, obviously, that didn't come in, but you made reference to it. Uh, during the testimony. And the judge was very upset with that, making reference to it. And he said that he had ruled on that issue already. And you had indicated that perhaps he hadn't ruled on that issue. And that it was an open question. What happened there? (laughs) So first of all, I think your audience of attorneys will uh,
1: understand what I'm saying when I say that uh, Judge Schrader is is a man a judge who barks and we've all dealt with judges like that um for those who don't know him uh, I, a lot of my non-attorney uh friends have uh, been shocked at some of his behavior, but honestly, it's par for the course with him. Um, off the bench, he is one of the nicest human beings you could ever met, uh, meet. Uh, but when he puts the robe on, like some judges, he changes. And um, I've been in his court, I've been yelled at before, it it really goes in one ear out the other. So that was not unusual uh, for, for being in that courtroom. Um, so that's why I didn't really react to it because I've heard it all before. Um, To your point about that legal issue, what the judge had done at the uh, motion hearing prior to trial was he had indicated that he was uh, inclined to not allow that evidence in, um, but he would leave the door open uh, based on the evidence at trial. And this is something he's done in other trials that I've had. Um, a lot of judges like to make a decision on other acts evidence, uh, what we call here in Wisconsin, other acts evidence of so 404 evidence in the federal rules, um, long before trial, so that everybody knows the rules going in. Uh, this judge has always made it clear <clears throat> that he will reserve those rulings and kind of see how things go at trial. And so as the evidence comes in and it changes throughout the trial, uh, it affects how he rules on things. And so I was expecting that that would be his attitude here. He made it clear the door was still slightly open. Uh, He hadn't completely closed it on this evidence. And when there was testimony from the defendant uh, that I felt was opening the door and and allowing this evidence in that was pertaining to it, I felt that it was appropriate to go there. Um, I think his biggest issue was that he felt I should have raised that with him ahead of time. But of course, I'm in the middle of cross-examination. I can't just pause and say, judge. Uh, I need a five-minute recess so I can ask you whether or not I can go down this line of questioning. And I think it's it can't be overemphasized that we're talking about a cross-examination in a double homicide case. I'm sorry, but there's a lot of leeway in, in that type of situation. This is a defendant who's taking the stand and is testifying about two killings that he committed i'm 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 entitled to a little leeway here, you know this isn't something where I brought in a third witness to talk about this video uh, you know something like that i didn't put it in my case in chief at all, but now we 're on cross now he's taken the stand now he's got to answer, and I think in those situations, I think courts should allow us quite a bit of leeway um, and unfortunately he didn't but again you know the uh, the the verbiage the the um, the the words he used the way he addressed me. Uh, it really is par for the course. Didn't, didn't So, so you've, you've been before Judge Schroeder uh, before. So I, I've done trials with him and I did trials with him uh, over 10 years ago. I was in his court on a regular basis for over two years in our office. Uh, I've done, I like, think this is my third homicide trial with him. So, so I've done quite a few trials in front of him and I'm used to him. Um, our entire office is very familiar with him. He is a he's a judge, like I said, who's got a lot of bark. Um, oftentimes his bark is worse than his bite, uh, like is true for a lot of judges. Um, but you have to have thick skin in there, and you have to understand sure. that there are times when uh, he's going to use you as uh, as an example for whatever he's upset about. Uh, there are judges who have different demeanors, as we all know, uh, and some of their demeanors are more pleasant than others. Um, and like I said, off the bench he is a, he's an absolute prince. Um, but in his courtroom, you have to be prepared to take a lick in every once in a while. And like I said. Been been there before,
0: used to it. Uh, didn't really affect right. me too much. So so you know, watching this is the first time. Obviously, I've become familiar mm-hmm. with him, and 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 many people. Would you say since you've been before and before, is this did he act typically? Did he act the same as he would have in in other cases, or was there a difference in how he conducted himself because of the because of this case? I think the country got
1: a, a pretty full and accurate picture of Judge Schrader. He um he's got a lot of his own little peccadilloes, you know, the, jur- the the jeopardy questions during jury selection, the uh the ringtone and uh, answering his phone in the middle of trials, the very uh, uh learned treatises on uh the founders and uh, on ancient history. Um he's an incredibly uh, intelligent man and you know, he is our longest serving judge currently in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, he's been a judge for, I think, 37 or 38 years now. And uh, boy, I'm, I hope I'm half as sharp as he is at that age, because he is he's still uh, you know, very mentally agile, uh, very uh, adroit on the law, uh, very learned. Um, but you have to understand that there are those little peccadillos, like any judge, uh, and some judges have stronger and more obvious ones than others, and his are, his are quite uh, pronounced. Um, but no, I, I think that was um, largely a, uh, uh, an accurate picture of what, uh, what things are like in his courtroom uh, on a regular basis.
0: So, you know, obviously, in, in a trial like this, you're, you're bound by uh, what the charges are and what, uh, you know, your office decided to prosecute. Uh, there were all, uh, it was first degree reckless homicide. And obviously the issue came here as to whether, uh, there was, uh, self defense. And in Wisconsin, uh, when self defense is raised, the burden is on, on you as the prosecutor to, to show. Uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, that it wasn't self-defense, obviously a very difficult standard. But I want to ask you about, you know, why wasn't there, Wisconsin has a, a, a second-degree homicide uh, where you could have charged second-degree homicide with the position that the defendant thought he was entitled to use self-defense, but his use of force was unreasonable. Why wasn't the second-degree homicide brought? So, um
1: there are different charges for the for the two homicides here. The first uh, killing was of Joseph Rosenbaum. That was charged as a first degree reckless homicide. Um, the secondary intentional homicide would not have been a lesser included on that offense. It's mm-hmm. kind of a different line of uh, of creation. of. So you would have had to make a choice to go with one or the other. Right. And with that uh, particular incident, we we considered that a reckless homicide in the in the uh, in the sense that it was not uh, something that we felt we could prove premeditation on. It was more of a a hurried, uh, chaotic response on the defendant's part, so we felt that that was better characterized as reckless. Um, To your point uh, of second-degree intentional homicide, uh, you're right, that is a lesser-included of first-degree, and that would have applied to the second killing of Anthony Huber, uh, who had the skateboard. Uh, He was... That was originally charged as first-degree intentional At uh, in the jury uh, instruction conference with the judge. We persuaded him to allow the jury to consider the second-degree intentional homicide as a lesser-included charge. Um, to begin the case with that second-degree intentional homicide, I think, would have given up too much ground um, because I think... The um, first degree intentional homicide uh, is obviously a stronger charge. It carries with it a mandatory life in prison. Uh, I think it's the appropriate charge here. And I think it, it better crystallizes the, um, the real issue here, which is I'm not sure that I believe the defendant when he says that he had a genuine uh, belief that he had to defend his life in that situation. I think that there's credible evidence that suggests that he was out there essentially looking for trouble. You know bringing a gun into a violent situation to escalate uh, having his own political agenda and so i think that uh, he was willing to kill that night going in and willing to accept that so i think there's some element of no matter what was going on around him this was potentially going to happen so that goes to the genuineness of his beliefs here where i i don't buy his testimony that he sincerely believed that he needed to do this to preserve his life. Now that's what he testified to, and if you believe that, then the second degree intentional homicide asks the jury to decide whether or not a reasonable person would have, would have felt the same way in his situation, which is sort of the objective uh, standard of it. <clears throat> and uh, you know, I, I don't see any reason why any reasonable person would put themselves in that situation or believe that, but obviously the judge, or I'm sorry, the jury, uh, concluded otherwise. Uh, so that was their verdict of not guilty on that. Um, but to your question, I think charging it initially as second degree uh, intentional homicide, I think would have given up too much. And I think it, it in my opinion, didn't didn't fit the facts. Uh, I wanted the jury to consider that um, because I was concerned that if they didn't buy the first degree intentional homicide, they potentially just let them walk without considering any lessers. And I wanted to get a conviction out of this if I could, um, because I think there's a message that's sent here. Uh, This is a case where everybody's taking some sort of meaning from it, right? Um, Lots of people out there have taken it to say he's justified, he's right, he's innocent, he's a hero, and we should all be doing uh, what he did. Um, And that's unfortunate. Uh, And I wanted a different message to be taken from this because I I continue to believe that this is the sort of behavior we cannot condone. There has to be a consequence for it and uh, it's too dangerous uh, to allow this. You know, we're not alone. Uh, New York's had its own um, types of situations. Seattle, Portland, you know, Washington, D.C., you know, lots of communities around our country. Minneapolis uh, have seen uh, protests and violence that has uh, spilled over into looting, arson, and and other criminal activity. Um, And, you know, I've prosecuted, and I'm continuing to prosecute people who committed those violent acts during this incident. Um, So, you know, I get emails from people saying, why aren't you going after the looters or the arsonists? Uh, thanks. Uh, I am. I have several of those cases on my caseload and so does everybody else in our office. You know, but you have to have the police investigate. You have to have the police arrest. You have to have the police prosecute. You can't go out there and do vigilante justice. Then you, you don't leave, leave me anybody to prosecute. I mean, if Joseph Rosenbaum had, had not been killed that night and I had all the video and photos that we wound up having, I would have charged him with arson. And I would have taken him to trial and hopefully convicted him, and maybe he would have gone to prison for committing arson. But he wouldn't have been killed. We don't kill people for arson.
0: Right. And and I think you you made the point during the trial that uh, the first person that was that was shot, Rosenbaum, wasn't not, wasn't a good actor. That he did these things that were uh, that were criminal. Um, but as you just said here, we have a process for dealing with that, and the process is not executing them on the street by someone who's not not in law enforcement, someone that has no training and no experience, and is just walking around with uh, an AR-15.
1: Yeah, but, you know, he believed he did. You know, and that's that's another factor here that goes to his subjective belief and the sincerity of it. You know, this is a kid who claims to have been in some sort of youth cadet uh, police program in Illinois, had, uh, you know, worked with some local fire department or something. I mean, I think he had uh, notions or delusions of grandeur that, uh, you know, he'd gotten some imprimatur from the local police to go out there and do what he wanted to do, and and they approved of it. And so uh, he took the law into his own hands. Um, And that's certainly not something we want anybody to do, but a 17-year-old kid, it's it's
0: unfortunate, you know, two people lost their lives and, and didn't have to. And let's talk about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, specifically. He, he took the stand uh, in his own defense. What's, uh, what's your assessment of, of how he did and um, how, what impact that had on, on the trial? <laughs> You know, I've never in my life, uh, and I've done
1: over 100 jury trials. I, I not all defendants testify, obviously, but I've never seen a defendant testify and then be cross-examined and there's no redirect. They got him off the stand as quickly as they could because uh, they knew this is a kid who can. They can only fill his head with so much coaching, and then it's going to break down. And after five or six hours on the stand, it's not going to last. Um, so they had a they had a calculated strategy here. You know, they spent months, uh, I'm sure, and and money and time with with whoever's out there helping to, to prep him for trial. Um, and I think on his uh, direct examination, I think he did a nice job. Uh, you know, he 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 did what they asked him to do. He came across. Uh, he looked presentable. Um, he told his side of the story. He had his day in court. Um, there was a time in which he uh, started breaking down uh, and crying. Um, which I thought was uh, unconvincing. Uh, I thought that it was prompted by his own selfish fear, or what he claimed to be his fear at that time, which I think is a less than sympathetic uh, prompt for crying. I think the the tears were manufactured crocodile tears, and I think the jury saw right through them. Um, and there was no remorse uh, for anything. Uh, he was unapologetic. No concern about the lives that he took. Uh, none of that. And. You know, I get it. You got to walk a fine line in a self-defense case. You can't be saying I'm legally justified, but I feel bad that I killed those people. So, you know, I get that. On um, on I'm, I'm cross, I did my best. Uh, I I don't take uh, an, a ton amount of pride in it. I think I could have done better. Um, I I tried my best to knock some holes in it. I think that uh, I, I I'm I view cross examination as. Um, as a, as a, as if you had a block of marble in front of you and you've got to sculpt something. You can't take a sledgehammer and hit it in the middle and crack it in half. You got to go at it from the sides. So you got to chip away uh, inch by inch, uh, part by part. And eventually you get something that you're looking for here. So um, I tried to chip away where I could uh, at portions of this story that didn't make sense. Uh, and I think that I got him to admit some important things. You know, one of the parts of this case that was always going to be a concern was before the defendant uh, shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum, there was a gunshot that went off about two and a half seconds before that, in that in that very same area. It was shot off by a third party by the name of Joshua Zaminsky, who was tangentially related to the case throughout. And in their opening statements, there was some emphasis on this, that Rittenhouse felt, you know, that shot was a danger to him. He heard it from behind him. So he's turning and reacting. And you know, for all I know, it's coming from this guy who's chasing me and now I got to kill him because I think he's got a gut. And that was a concern I had was they were going to lean heavily into that. Um, I'm prosecuting Joshua Zeminski for arson. I got a trial against him at the end of January. I think he's a knucklehead. I have no idea why he fired that single shot off. Certainly didn't help situation. Um, so I was very concerned about what they were going to use that to try and justify the self-defense. But what I got Mr. Rittenhouse to admit on the witness stand is that that shot had nothing to do with any of this. He didn't pay any attention to it, It didn't. he didn't think it came from Rosenbaum, didn't think it had anything to do with anything, um, which I thought was an important concession, um, because now we're clearly just talking about an unarmed man who's chasing after you, you know, and Rosenbaum jumps in the air with his hands up in the midst of all this, so it's clear that this is an unarmed person, you know, and I know some states like Florida have stand your ground laws where anybody who comes at you, you get to kill them, but uh, not in Wisconsin. Um, And I I equated it in my closing to a bar fight. You know, unfortunately we've got a lot of bars in Wisconsin. We like our our beer and uh, there's bar fights, right? Uh, Two unarmed guys, they're throwing punches or whatever. Well, God forbid, the next bar fight, you know, some drunk idiot comes at you, pushes you, shoves you, takes a swing at you. And now I get to pull out my semi-automatic pistol and, kill him in cold blood. I mean, that's essentially what was going on here. And that's essentially what the jury said
0: was okay.
1: Um, and, and I, again, I, I can't abide by that. That's, that's going to lead to tragedy if that's the message people take from this.
0: Right, and I, I think there was some testimony from others that saw this Rosenbaum operating before that he, you know, appeared obviously a little bit off and others were just avoiding him. They, you know, walked the other way and that kind of diffused it. Uh, And he uh, Rittenhouse obviously chose not to. um, And, you know, uh, that was the difference. Now, you said something before that I know trial lawyers, uh, we always beat ourselves up. uh, We're probably our worst critics internally. But you said you thought you could have done some things better now with a little bit benefit of hindsight now. Uh, is there something that you're thinking maybe you could have gone into? I know it's a tightrope. You don't want to push too hard because you don't know what kind of answer you're going to get. But what do you think? What, what are you thinking that you maybe you could have done a little differently? You know, one of the
1: um, things that I was on the fence about at, at that particular moment in time was how deeply I wanted to go into the 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 photos and the videos of the actual shootings themselves. Um, I had heard from others that when I had previously played video of Gage Grosskreutz, for example, with his arm nearly blown off, when I played video of Joseph Rosenbaum gasping out his last breaths, that the defendant looked away. He was uncomfortable uh, seeing the, the fruits of his labor. And I considered uh, whether on the witness stand I would confront him with that and make him look at his victims make him look at what he had wrought and, and and own it. You know, you're here telling us that that you were right that these people deserve to die. Well, here they are. Now look them in the eye, unflinching, and and own what you did. And if you can't, if you're nervous, you're scared, you're grossed out, you're, you're you can't confront that. I think that says something about your conscience. I think that says something about your beliefs here. And I think if you are not man enough to own up to what you did, then don't don't you dare come in here and tell us that these people deserve to die and you're legally justified in doing all this. So I considered that and I and I thought about playing it for him and making him confront that reality. Uh, I ultimately decided against it, much like you just said, because we don't know. And I was concerned. That I would give him an opening to look sympathetic. He would cry. He would blubber. He would, uh, you know, give some sort of sob story and it would feed into the narrative. So I, I, I decided against that. Um, but it was, it was a difficult decision. And maybe if I had, it would have made a difference. I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's rare to do a trial where the murderer takes the stand and says, yes, I did it, um, but it, I had to, and I'm right. And, you know, there's never, there's rarely two sides to a murder trial. You know, there's there's rarely a side that says, oh yeah, that, that guy was right to kill those people. It's always, <laughs> I didn't kill them, or, you know, I, you know, I wasn't there, I have an alibi, or it was someone else. You know, it's always trying to dodge the actual crime. Here we had him embracing it, you know, and so "Yeah, it's me. I did it. Absolutely." Blah blah blah. Um, so you don't have that other that that's that other side of it. Um, and in a, in a different trial where you've got a defendant who's not admitting they did it, who's claiming they're someplace else, you know, playing the photos or the videos of the murder, it, it doesn't resonate because they're they're saying, "Hey, I, I wasn't even there, so I don't." Right. This doesn't have any impact on me. Um, so it, it was an unusual situation that I haven't really encountered before, where you've got some, somebody who's you know, owning up to it. Um, and so I wanted him, I thought about, you know, making him confront all that and, and, and seeing it face to face. So maybe
0: that would have made a difference.
1: Who knows? Uh, it's hard to say. And you,
0: I guess you, as a prosecution, you have to balance that. You don't want to appear, you know, mean or insensitive that you're, you know, pushing the, you know, the most salacious parts of of what happened and and obviously if you're putting it in front of him you're putting it in front of the jury and you yeah, might yeah. appear it might you're, make you're, you appear you're exploiting the victims you're you're
1: right. uh you're cheapening it so there's there's those factors as well and and you know i'm dealing with victims who have families you know they're there um and i i've got an obligation to them as
0: well um so i i i was concerned about that too that's an absolutely uh, an excellent point dave have have you have you had a chance to talk to the families uh at all since i have not um we uh a couple of the
1: families were largely participating by um uh mm-hmm. by essentially by zoom or you know remotely um we had uh mr huber's uh closest um the person in his family that he was closest to was his great aunt who testified and um I didn't get a chance to talk to her afterwards, um, but I know other folks in our office did um and then uh Mr. Grosskreutz and his attorneys
0: we've we've had a little bit of communication since then, but not me personally. You made another strategic decision during the trial. you characterized Rittenhouse as uh what you called an active shooter um and and you used that term active shooter. Um, what was the thought process that went into using that? And, and I, I, the question I have is by using that term, did you perhaps set the bar too high that now you had to show that this person was an active shooter when maybe that wasn't necessary? And, you know, Dave, I think I probably didn't communicate that notion very well because, um,
1: you've. You've characterized what I said in in a way that others have too, and and I, it's clearly that I didn't I didn't make this distinction very very well at the trial because I wasn't actually trying to say myself that he was an active shooter, but what I was trying to say is that from the crowd's perspective, that's how they they viewed him, um, and that was a reasonable uh, assumption on their part at that particular moment. Um, I don't necessarily. Uh, believe that he was going to go and and mow down you know 25 people or anything like that but what I was trying to say is that after um, learning that he just shot someone uh, seeing him running through a crowded area with a gun that it would have been reasonable for the jury to or sorry for the crowd to view him as an active shooter and under those circumstances you know We have in Wisconsin, we now have the ability for individuals to apply for a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Uh, I have one of those permits myself. Uh, I'm a gun owner and uh, we are allowed to carry concealed weapons in public. And one of the rationales behind that is uh, if there is an active shooter, if I go to the grocery store and somebody pulls out a gun and starts mowing people down, well, then I've got my gun and I can try and stop them. Uh, And I'm, I'm using I generally there. I don't have any intent of doing that myself, but a lot of people out there think that that's what they would do in that circumstance. And the larger question that I have is, you know, when the police arrive and they see two people with guns who are both shooting at one another, how are they supposed to know? How are they supposed to know who's right and who's wrong? How are they supposed to know that one person's got the right to self-defense and the other one doesn't? And getting it back to this case here, you know, Rittenhouse wants us to believe that he had to defend himself against Joseph Rosenbaum. Well, that's in its own little category. And that's an event that's happened. And we don't have a judge and jury there to make that decision at that particular moment in time. All they know, all the crowd knows is he just shot someone and now he's running with his gun. And it's reasonable for them to assume at that point that this is someone who may be running to his next victim. We simply don't know. And in my mind, if someone in that crowd had a gun and had killed, you know, shot and killed Kyle Rittenhouse, our office would not have prosecuted. Our office would have not found that person criminally liable. Now, would there have been civil liability? I'm not an expert. I don't know. But would I say that that's uh, justified self defense for someone in that crowd to stop an active shooter? Yes. I would say so. Now, here, this crowd didn't take lethal action against him. They actually used what I would characterize as probably the least intrusive means possible. I mean, they try and hit him with a skateboard. They try and knock him to the ground and kick him in the face when they could be doing far worse to him. Um, But my argument on that point was, who's? it really comes down to who's got the right to self-defense in that situation. You know, at the end of this entire encounter, you've got the defendant on the ground and you've got Gage Grosscourt standing over him with a Glock pistol in his hand. The defendant has an AR-15 and they're two feet apart. Now, is it possible that both of those people at that exact moment in time have an equal right to self-defense? I don't think so. I don't think there is a, a situation. I think in any situation, someone's got a greater right. And so who's got the greater right there? Kyle Rittenhouse, who's just killed two people and shot at a third, and this has all happened right in front of Gage Grosskreutz, or Gage Grosskreutz, who's done nothing wrong at that point. And unfortunately, the way our jury instructions are awarded, we were not allowed to look at it as clearly from the perspective of the victim. Um, but what I tried to argue is Gage Grosskreutz and the rest of that crowd have a greater right to self-defense than the defendant. And so if they view him as an active shooter, if they have no definitive answer on who was right or who was wrong in that first shooting, I think they've got the right to take steps to disarm, to neutralize, and perhaps even to kill someone that they perceive to be an active shooter. And so that's the the, the line of argument that I was trying to make to the jury um, and I, I think this is a situation that we, we have seen before, uh, you know, from Columbine to Sandy Hook to the Aurora, you know, movie theater. Um, there was a situation a few years ago, I think it was in Denver somewhere, where a police officer showed up to an active shooting and inadvertently killed the guy who was innocently trying to use his gun to stop the active shooter. It was that mm. situation I described earlier with the grocery store. They, they killed the wrong guy. Um, you know, you, you don't know. In an active shooter situation and you know a couple of the officers in the trial testified first rule is neutralize the threat we're not here to you know treat the wounded we're here to stop the threat that's our number one priority and so that was my argument is this crowd has the right to stop the threat they have the right to defend themselves and he loses it at that point you can't have two people with an equal right of self-defense theirs has to be greater than his and that's something i think the jury should have considered and if they agreed with me on that then i think. He should have been found guilty, obviously they saw it differently
0: what what do you think was the was the turning point here? I mean you mentioned gage uh, uh, I mean gross gross cracks gross yeah um you know he he was the 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 individual that was shot but wounded um and actually testified um, there's some feeling that some of his testimony actually helped uh the written house uh, self defense because he said he never raised his gun to him until uh this individual went to try to 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 take it away from him which is certainly not unreasonable when the the person already shot uh somebody um but that testimony uh was uh appears to be particularly crucial as to showing the mindset of of written house what what was what was your thought on on putting This individual on the stand and how his testimony impacted the case?
1: Honestly, I considered not even calling him at all. Uh, In fact, I talked to him and his attorneys uh, before the trial and I told them I was on the fence as to whether or not to put him on the stand because I was concerned uh, that he did more harm than good. Um, And, you know, I think we we were handed a a situation here where we didn't have uh, the most sympathetic victims in the world. And you know, I I think Gage Grosskreutz has got a lot of positive qualities. You know, he's trained as a medic. He's out there trying to help people. Um, I've met with him several times. I, I like him personally. Um, but there are some things in his testimony that I knew were going to gonna come back to hurt us. You know, he's involved in a civil lawsuit against the city. He's associated with some protest group out there that has a particularly you know a name that just doesn't uh, doesn't resonate well with our community uh, people's revolution or something like that it sounds like you know chairman mao and uh, it's just not uh, not a good look um so uh there was some of that but i felt in the end the jury needed to hear from from the victim you you know he's a victim on a, on a criminal count we've got a We've got to present his testimony. They need to hear from him. And that was kind of my attitude throughout a lot of these witnesses is I was trying to put all my cards on the table. I'm not hiding anything. I want every, the jury to hear everything good and bad. Um, and ultimately it comes down to those, those facts of, of killing an unarmed person. But to your point about gross courts, you know, I kind of, I, I got a, a sad chuckle, I guess, out of the, the defense argument that anybody who's got a gun uh, deserves to be killed. Uh, your guy had a gun all night long. Well, well, anybody who's points a gun deserves to be killed. Uh, well, your guy pointed a gun at everybody that night. You know, it's just uh, sometimes I wonder how much thought they put into these arguments. Like, do you see where, do you see the contradiction here? Do you see the hypocrisy? Um, and there's a, clearly a set of of rules and standards that apply to the defendant that uh no one else gets to claim self defense no one else gets to arm themselves no one else gets to point a gun, no one else gets to even grab a chain or use their boots or use a skateboard. you know all these are scary scary people, but the seventeen year old running around with a with a assault rifle uh is is privileged and and an angel and uh and none of these uh standards apply to him so uh that's unfortunate but uh like i said, I think uh, Kreutz, we the jury had to hear from him if they hadn't it would have, it would have left questions in their mind that I couldn't afford to leave and uh, I wanted them to hear from a victim and I think one of the strongest and most poignant parts of his testimony was him explaining that you know he's standing over someone that he knows has just killed people. Uh, Kreutz has his own gun in his own hand and in my mind is legally justified in pointing it and killing this person. And he says, I'm not the kind of person that could take a life, you know, and there are people out there that can make that decision and make it casually.
0: Um, but a lot of people can't. And clearly we know which side he's on. Right. And of course, you as a prosecutor, you represent us, the people, and your job is to get the facts out there um, the best you can. Um, you're in the, the truth finding business. And uh, your job is to get the the facts out the best you can and present your case. And it's and it's up to the jury to make that determination. Uh, you've decided here not to appeal. There's not going to be an appeal of this, or is it's not possible uh, on a not guilty verdict? The state has no right to an appeal. Okay, so that's over. Now I understand that uh, Rittenhouse was on a uh, I think what's been described as a right wing news program yesterday and he refers to you. Uh, he says he wants to become a lawyer, uh, so that he can go up against prosecutors like Thomas Binger, um, and uses a derogatory term that I'm not going to use. Um, what do you think of that?
1: (laughs) I honestly haven't paid any attention to Mr. Rittenhouse since this trial has been, uh, over. Uh, I've moved on with my life. I have, uh, I have my own life. I have uh, other cases. I was in trial all today, all day today on a sexual assault trial, which is gonna wrap up tomorrow. Um, so I have, I have other things that I'm focusing on. Um, right. I, uh, I continue to get emails um, from time to time. They've slowed down to a trickle, um, but uh, I still get emails from, from kind people out there that share their deepest thoughts with me in, in the sweetest, most gentle terms possible. Uh, yes, I'm being very sarcastic, and uh, I largely ignore them. Um, I I don't understand why the focus is on me. Uh, I am not any different than 10,000 other prosecutors out there around our country. I'm doing my job just like everyone else. I am no, no more special, no more talented, no more unique than any other prosecutor out there. And if this case had fallen on the caseload of one of those other 9,999 prosecutors, they would have done the same thing I did and probably better uh, than I did. Um, So this was never about me. uh, And I don't, there's no need to focus on me. Uh, This isn't personal. Um, It's a job that I do. Uh, I believe that We had a case. I believe that uh, this was wrong. I believe there should have been justice and consequences. Um, The jury disagreed. And that's the beauty of our system. We give it to the power to the jury and they make their decision. And once that's done, we have to accept it and move on with our lives. And that's what I'm doing. Um, Mr. Rittenhouse can say what he wants to say. I'm not going to pay any attention to it.
0: Well, as attorneys, I think we understand that, that you're you're doing your job and attorneys have to uh provide representation this is your uh, chosen field and you're you're doing your job to the best uh of your ability i don't know that the general public always completely appreciates uh that uh we certainly at the bar association appreciate that we appreciate you i want to thank you for your service as uh an assistant district attorney i want to thank you for sharing your time with us here on Miranda warnings and giving the insights on this really fascinating case. Uh, we are very appreciative of both of those things. So I want to thank you for that, Thomas. Well, you're welcome. Thank you, Dave, for the opportunity to speak with you. And I appreciate the, uh, the
1: discussion and the questions and, and, uh, I don't know if anyone will be uh, paying any attention or listening, but uh, I I hope uh, somebody out there got something of value out of
0: this. Well, it's been very enlightening, and I know uh, many attorneys are going to be very interested in what you have to say. And obviously, what we've been talking about is very serious and important. We do have something of a lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings that I want to ask you about. We have something called Music Book or Movie, and you can tell us... uh, what takes you away uh, from uh, some of these serious topics uh, that you enjoy? <laughs> well, all three of those. And it's it's hard to narrow it down
1: because uh, I can talk all day and all night about books, music uh, or movies. Um, so I. Uh, I. I, I I'm a big movie buff. Uh, I've got older siblings who I grew up watching, uh, you know, 1930s and 40s film noir and and the classics and Hitchcock and uh, John Ford Westerns and things like that. So movies have always been uh, nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, The Sting has always been my all-time favorite movie. I uh, absolutely adore it, Um, but uh, I I guess most pertinent to our discussion, uh, one of the movies that I think about a lot is Michael Clayton which is a George Clooney movie that came out about 14 years ago. And he plays a lawyer in, a, I think a New York firm, actually, he actually comes to Milwaukee uh, at the beginning of the movie, but, um, one of the messages of that movie, and I, I hope I'm not spoiling it for someone who hasn't watched a movie for, from 14 years ago, but um, you know, I spent about half my career in private practice and I've spent about half of it as a prosecutor. And so um, most of the attorneys that are, are listening to us uh, probably been in one of those fields at one point or the other. Um, and I, uh, private practice wasn't for me uh, and it is for a lot of other folks. And that's that's fine. I respect that. But the movie Michael Clayton, I think, uh, says a lot about what that can, the, the process can do to us and what, uh, what it means for us. And, um, you know, I think most of us have had a time in our lives when we've had to undertake some sort of professional assignment or responsibility that we find personally less than satisfying, perhaps even completely, uh, antithetical to our beliefs and, uh, We do it because it's our job. We do it because it's our ethical obligation. Um, one of my joys in being a prosecutor is that I very rarely find myself in that situation. Um, I have the discretion to make my own decisions about my cases, and I am at a point in my career where my office gives me some freedom uh, to pick and choose some things that I, I may not otherwise have. In private practice, you know, I think anybody who's been in that situation has dealt with clients, has dealt with cases that, uh, we just dread, you know, it's uh, it's a tough situation to be in. And uh, so that's a movie that I think does as good of a job as any film I've ever seen of capturing um, that that philosophy. And it's a, it's a movie that maybe non-lawyers uh, aren't as drawn to as, as those of us who are lawyers uh, are. Um, I don't remember if George Clooney was nominated for an Academy Award for that, but I do think it's one of his finest performances and the rest of the, Tilda Swinton did win um, best supporting actress for it and she is phenomenal in it as she is in everything she does um, but um, Tom Wilkinson's in it and uh, um, uh, well, that director who passed away I forget his name now but uh, anyway there's a lot of good actors uh, and it's a great story it's a great movie it is um, it's extraordinarily well written there's there's very little uh, wasted uh, motion in that movie everything feeds towards the plot and uh it's well edited and uh, it's it's one of my all-time favorites so uh in turn i mean we can we can talk all day about you know 12 angry men and the verdict and a few good men and and all these courtroom dramas over the years but uh i would put that up there as one of the finest uh, legal based films that i've ever seen
0: great so michael clayton uh we'll give it another We'll give it another look now with fresh eyes 14 years later. Thank you very much. And again, thank you for your candor with us here today on Miranda Warnings. Thank you for your service. And and, uh, Thomas Binger, uh, Assistant District Attorney uh, in Kenosha, Uh, uh, we wish you the, the best of luck going forward. Thank you, Dave. Have a good holiday season. Thank you. You too. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, Review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.